Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to All the Books a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 285, and today we are talking about books being released on November 10th, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello there. Hey. How are you? I'm okay. I'm, (laughs) it's, what day is it? It's Friday, November 6th. We had an election this week. The results are still not in, not all in yet. So it's been a long week for a lot of us, I think, for everyone. (laughs) But we're going to have some fun and talk about books. Yes. I actually can't thank you enough for picking today for recording and not yesterday, because my mood is extremely better (laughs) today than it was yesterday. (laughs) So, yay. Yay books. Uh, Yeah. I've been on a reading, like, I've been in, like, a reading frenzy. I don't know why, but I cannot, like, stop reading. I've been just all kinds of books and it's been so great and I don't mean to brag I'm not trying to brag but like, my brain doesn't usually go that way when things are stressful mm-hmm. and so I've just been riding that wave just like woof I, like I literally am like so excited to get back to this book that I've been reading after we finished recording today <laughs> yeah mine is extremely not in that place I am absolutely in the like opposite <laughs> opposite camp no I mean it's just the way it's been um <laughs> like I've uh full disclosure have I'm pretty far through every single one of the books today, but like I'm not finished with a single one because I completely overestimated what my focus was going to be. And yeah, it was really, really uh. rough. And it's, I mean, I love what I've read so far, which is great. And I got much further than I thought, but I was doing so good. And then literally about a week and a half ago, it just, I know, it's one of those where you read the page like 20 times and you realize you have no idea what <laughs> you've read. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to resign myself to that and like keep it pushing. So it's fine. <laughs> Well, we're just going to relax right now, take some deep breaths and talk about books and it'll be okay. It will. It will. Before we do that, we're going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Steve Aoki's HeroQuest at your local bookstore or online at HeroQuest.com and catch Steve live on the Heavenly Hell Tour. Hero Quest is the graphic novel that is the story of a genetically augmented metahuman named Hero who travels into the multiverse 400 years into the future to save Earth from a disaster it cannot avoid. It has everything from mutants to robots to zombies to aliens, witches, and more. It's a quest for 10 rings of tremendous power from 10 different worlds that will be needed to save our world from certain disaster. It's an epic journey that will require the hero named Hiro to be cursed to save the lives of billions on Earth. It's a story of heroism, wonder, betrayal, and finally, revelation. This is the hero's journey. This is Hiro's quest. So the story was imagined by the mind of Steve Aoki and written by New York Times bestselling author Jim Kruger and Steve Aoki. So make sure to check it out. And this episode comes thanks again to Steve Aoki's Hero Quest at your local bookstore or online at HeroQuest.com and catch Steve live on the Heavenly Hell Tour. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. All right. My first book today is my most anticipated story collection of 2020. And it did not disappoint. It is probably my favorite story collection that I read this year. It is The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. She wrote an incredible collection that came out a few years ago called Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self. And this is not just my most anticipated story collection, but a lot of people's. It's six stories and a novella, and it's so fantastic. The first story is about a young woman who is working in the gift shop of a Titanic replica a ship and they hold parties there and they're shooting music videos there. Uh, the second is about a photojournalist who attends the wedding of an acquaintance uh, who she shot while they were trapped in a hotel because there had been a threat on their plane and he ends up inviting her to her wedding and because of the nature of the photograph everyone suspects that she has had relations with the groom but no one will come out and ask her that and she's kind of there in like this thinly veiled hostility but no one will come out and say like you know we think you something happened between you and and the groom one is about a white woman who goes viral after her boyfriend posts a picture of her wearing a confederate flag bikini uh, and she's did sort of like the repercussions of that one is about a family there is a great granddaughter who's great-grandfather was in Alcatraz. He was locked up in Alcatraz for a crime that he did not commit, and he was eventually freed. And his granddaughter, who grew up with him, uh, has been seeking reparations. She thinks that that he should be given honorable discharge from the military because he was given a dishonorable discharge because of what happened, and she also wants the government to pay reparations. There's one, this is probably my favorite of the short stories called Why Won't Women Just Say What They Want, which is a story for the Me Too era. It's about a famous artist. He's just called like this famous artist and he disappears. And then suddenly these women in his life begin receiving apologies from him, which seem improbable because it's just not his his way. But like one shows up in the form of a pop-up shop. One woman gets an apology over a grocery store announcement. There are billboards. He's like tries. He does all these different things to uh, give his apologies. And the women in the story are named as he kind of refers to them, like high school sweetheart, the model actress, the long suffering ex wife, the daughter. And it's it's about like is this genuine or is this an act? Like what's going on here? And then the title story, the Office of Historical Corrections, is actually a novella, and it is about a black woman scholar named Cassie. She has left teaching to work for the Institute for Public History. And this is a new organization that was started in the last few years um, because uh, people were worried about the lying by the current administration. So they sort of issue corrections to things like she's in a bakery and they have a sign up about celebrate Juneteenth. And she 
issues them a correction saying like, you know, you got the dates of this wrong. And it's like a little silver prism sticker. It says like, it's been corrected by this officer on this date. And they try to be like, not confrontational. There are guidelines to being an officer for the Institute for Public History. You know, you have to issue corrections if it's a proven fact, like that's something that you can prove. You can't issue things based on your personal opinions. You're not to engage in any fighting, like in person or on the internet. And the organization is kind of laughed at people like by the internet. They give them the name the Office of Historical Corrections, which they actually think is pretty cool, which is where the title comes from. So Cassie gets called in by her boss one day because one of the women that she worked with, Genevieve, who has recently been fired, who is also her childhood sort of frenemy, uh, she's been kind of she's more like aggressive in her citations. Um, she goes to a famous play and changes all the um, programs to report that George Washington was not, in fact, a kindly, handsome, singing black man, but, you know, a brutal slave owner. Citations that, while true, like, really ruffle some feathers, and she ends up getting fired. And so now Cassie's boss needs her to go to Wisconsin because there was this event in history in the early 1900s where black business owner his business was burned down and they put a plaque on the side of where the business had been saying like this was owned by this gentleman and it burned down and and he was killed in the process. But this woman Genevieve goes there and she adds the names of the perpetrators, the people who burned the business down because they have a photo of themselves from like a year after in which they're standing proudly in front of it claiming to have burned this place down. So she adds the, their names to the sign. But now like a hundred years later, there are complications Uh, One of which being like there's this uh, white supremacist group called Free Americans who have a chapter in this town and they're angry that this black woman pointed out that their ancestors were racist and their ancestors were murderers. And so they're stirring up trouble in the town. There are more complications because Cassie's ex lives in this town and she's also sure that she has been sent to deal with this because she is a black woman and she thinks that her bosses are you know, trying to say like, oh, look, a black woman came and she said it's okay, so everything's going to be okay. Whereas, in fact, it's just like a horrible racist crime that that occurred. It's fantastic. It's so fantastic. Like, all of the stories, I mean, I felt like I took a whole punch to the heart. Just, they're just incredible. I will give you content warnings for racism, racialized violence, murder, illness, mention of sexual assault, and gaslighting. The stories are tight and amazing, and sometimes they're almost so casual in their brutality that it just takes you aback, and you're just like, because they're so real, and they're so, they're contemporary, like, these are things that are happening today, and she's not wrong, and you just go, oh, this world, (laughs) you know, they make you think, and they're just incredible. So that is called The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans. Oh, I've been really wanting to read that one. And I love that the first story is about the like Titanic thing, because in San Diego, we had a really like, access to one of those Titanic museums, huh. <laughs> because it was right across the border in Tijuana. And as a kid, I really wanted to work at one. So yay. <laughs> I didn't realize it was like a real place or thing, but it makes sense. You know, like people love, you know, disasters and history. And I mean, yeah, I was gonna say. Oh, and think about how, like, big that movie was, because it was actually built around yeah. the movie. And yeah, so, like, yeah. you could, like, everybody I knew would come back from a weekend in Mexico with this picture of Leonardo DiCaprio, and we all swore that we actually took that picture. Like, no, we clearly all bought it at the gift store. We were like, look, <laughs> I got this picture with Leo. Like, no, you didn't. Calm down. But it was fun. <laughs> so that's my little story for the day. Well, I learned something. She probably based it on that replica. I just had no idea. It's very possible. Yeah, it was a huge, like, it was such a huge attraction for that particular area, too. 
We don't have a Titanic replica here, but we do have a submarine on land, like right in the middle of land, just sitting there. Just for funsies. This famous submarine, which people like authors would always point out. They're like, because you have to drive by it on the way to the bookstore that I used to work at. And they'd oh, really? Like, you have a <laughs> submarine on land. We're like, yep. <laughs> That's all I can say about it. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be really silly today, everyone, and it's getting me through. <laughs> I guess I should actually talk about a book now, though. Um, and this book is one that I completely, I did not know it was coming out. This just shows how distracted I've been because I loved the first book in this series. So the book I'm talking about is Moonflower Murders by Anthony Horowitz. So this is the follow-up to Magpie Murders, which, again, I somehow managed not to know was going to have or, or be a series. But it was one of my favorite mysteries from, oh gosh, what is time? A couple years ago, maybe? I feel like it was like 2017 or 18. But it's without, I don't think anything I'm about to say is a spoiler, but essentially that particular mystery is about this publisher named Susan Ryland and her, one of her like most successful authors, whose name is Alan Conway, is very famous for the series of books that are mysteries in the vein of like an Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers. They're called the Atticus Pund Mysteries. That's the name of the like star detective. And this author of hers, Alan Conway, has died. And in getting a hold of his final manuscript, she realizes that there may be clues in this book to what happened, like what really happened to him, that like the circumstances of his death maybe were not what, you know, it, it, they were determined to be. So it's like a book within a book, a thing I didn't realize. I thought I had a bad galley. I did not. <laughs> but it's just very much like my kind of book. So you're getting essentially like a English cozy mystery in the middle of this like contemporary mystery. And it was just all kinds of, of fun. So again, I did not know that this is a series. So this is the next book. And in this book, we meet, you know, Susan Ryland once again. She is off living her best life. She retired after the case from the previous book. And she has moved to Crete, where she runs this charming boutique hotel. It's very, you know, Mamma Mia-esque. But truth be told, she's kind of getting tired of the slow pace of the island. She's starting to miss London. And as luck would have it, the Trehearn family comes to stay at this hotel and they tell her a little story. And that story is that eight years ago, their daughter Cecily got married at this picturesque inn that they own on the Suffolk coast. She got married at the hotel, but the wedding weekend was ruined when one of the hotel's guest, but not a wedding guest, just like a passing guest, was murdered. And almost immediately, the Romanian maintenance guy, so like the hotel's handyman is convicted of the crime. But Cecily confesses to her parents shortly thereafter that she's pretty positive that that man, in fact, she's very positive that that man wasn't uh, responsible for the crime. And then shortly thereafter that, she goes missing. So now the Treherns want Susan's help in solving the case. And she's like, well, why, why, why me? Like, what's up? You know, and they say, well, the late Alan Conway, the author, you know, that made her like a very successful publisher, knew the murder victim. And not only that, but he based the third book in his Atticus Pund detective series called Atticus Pund Takes the Cake uh, on that very crime. So that's pretty much all it takes to get Susan on board. She, you know, off she goes to the Suffolk coast to talk to some people. But she ultimately discovers, once again, that a reread of this book is going to be the thing that leads her to the truth. So we once again are getting a book within a book. This one is much more... Like in the first book, you read a bit of the contemporary intro, and then you're kind of immersed in the cozy mystery. But the cozy mystery is like relatively straightforward, at least I thought so. You know, definitely, again, an homage sort of to the Agatha Christie. So that's lots of red herrings. And it was very, you know, in a sleepy English town. 
And we get some of that here too, but I thought this book within a book, and again, I'm not 100% done, but was much more like throw you off to the point where some people might actually find it a bit, I guess, distracting from like the big mystery. I personally really dig the mystery within a mystery. And it's just so fun to spend time with this kind of thing because this is the book that I got the furthest through (laughs) because it's just like what is comfort and like a balm to my brain. So a lot of fun. I do not know how many more books are planned for the series, if there are even more, but I would love it if they were. I'm a big fan of of those books. So again, that's Moonflower Murders by Anthony Horowitz. Okay, my next book is a delightful YA novel called A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow by Laura Taylor Namey. It is the story of a 17-year-old Cuban-American girl named Leela Reyes. She lives in Miami with her family, and she learns that bad news does indeed come in threes in a matter of weeks, possibly a couple months, her abuela dies, she loses her best friend, and her boyfriend dumps her. And so her abuela owned a bakery that Leela and Pilar, her older sister, worked at. Uh, They are set to inherit it someday and become the owners. Leela loves to cook. It's in her blood. She's so thrilled to be the owner and manager of this restaurant someday, but she didn't want to come into it this way. And she's just graduated from high school, and her abuela has died um, she and Pilar are making plans to take over the, the restaurant. And at the same time, she has a falling out with her best friend, her best, best, best friend from when she was very young, Stephanie. They had planned their future lives around each other. You know, They were just always going to be together. And now they've had a falling out and they're not speaking. And at the same time, her boyfriend, Andreas, who is like the catch of her city. He's the son of a congressman. He's very handsome. He's always in the news. They're always in the news together. They're on social media. And, you know, people are like, oh, you're dating a congressman's son. He breaks it off with her. And now instead, she's just sort of the subject of gossip. You know, her parents are like, yeah, yeah, we hear people talking about you in the grocery store, which is like, don't say that. But she's having a really hard time. Any one of these things are devastating, but all three at the same time, she is just heartbroken. And so her parents decide to send her to stay with her mother's cousin in England for the summer. She, they send her off to stay with her mother's cousin, Kate. She is really not into this idea, but at the same time, she realizes like she has to do something differently because things are not working for her right now. So her cousin, Kate, and her husband and son own a bed and breakfast or sort of like a, a fancy inn that has a restaurant attached to it. And Leela, after holding up in her room for the first few days, finally ventures out and discovers that it has the best kitchen she's ever seen besides her abuela's kitchen. And instead of sulking, she decides she wants to work in the kitchen. And she has big ideas and also big opinions about the food that's being served. You know, she thinks like they should use butter instead of margarine and they think sh- that this is too sweet. And this and so she's kind of butts heads with Polly the an older english woman who has been cooking there for 15 years and she learned all of her recipes and her um food from her nana and so they kind of butting heads about what they should do um and so now that she can't really make changes leela thinks this whole summer is going to be rotten after all but then she meets the cutie patootie tea delivery boy orion maxwell His family owns a tea shop down the street, and they supply the tea to the inn. And he and Leela kind of hit it off, and he decides he's going to show Leela his own tour of England. Um, And she starts having a great time. And suddenly, her feelings about the country and the future change. And now she has to decide what she's going to do at the end of the summer. It's sweet. It's heart-squeezing. The descriptions of food made me so hungry. Nothing I could eat, but I still love reading about food. I'm like, mmm, butter. 
Butter by proxy. Mm. It's just, it's utterly charming. And so that is called A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow by Laura Taylor Namey. If we could name episodes, I would nominate Butter by Proxy. That would be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> that book is so everything that I love between like the English stuff and the Latina girl. So I was super bummed that you snapped that one up, but I'm going to read Oh, that. you should have told me I would have I would have let you have it. You know, I I'm willing to share almost always. <laughs> You always are. I just got like a way slow start to picking my books. I was like, nah, she gets it. She gets it. That's cool. At least people get to hear about it. I will talk about my next book, which is a turn, but such a good book. And this is How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America by Kiesa Lehman. Kiesa is the author of Long Division, which is a book I really loved, and the memoir Heavy. And Kiesa Lehman's, this actually is his first nonfiction release, but that first came out back in 2013. So that's the version that I originally read, but it's now been revised and released and it has six new essays, which I'm most of the way through, not all, but it's just as good as everything I remember. And now, you know, with with new content. So the book moves back and forth between several different locations throughout Kiese's life. So Jackson, Mississippi is where he was born and raised. Oberlin, which is where he went to college. We spend time in, I think, Indiana, where he got his first uh, like fellowship for creating writing program in New York, where he taught at Vassar. And one other place, uh, I think Oxford, Mississippi, where he, I think he teaches to this day. And so the essays are, I mean, there are many things. They are an examination for sure of race, identity, and justice. They're also just extremely personal. We get an interview with his mom. There's a lot of discussion on the labor that Black women do just in society, which I thought was extremely relevant to the situation that we are finding ourselves in now, even with our election. It talks about college football and like outcast. So it does kind of go all over the place in a really great way. But it's it just, again, felt so timely. And even though I'd already read some of the essays, I was quite, you know, just happy, I guess, to see how much the the other ones, the, the newer content is every bit is moving. And again, just feels very of the moment and will unfortunately probably be for some time. So when Lehman was a beginning writer, I, I read this, I think in a, in a review somewhere, but that he had an editor that essentially said that real, real Black writers make their discussions of race, class, gender, et cetera, like implicit, and that the quote-unquote nace rarative is over, bro, was like an actual quote that was said to him. And he made it a point, which I absolutely support and think, you know, is is needed to make these themes undeniable, like very explicit, very up for, you know, front and, and forward. I just made that phrase up, I think. But anyway, it is, again, it just feels super of the moment because there is, unfortunately, I think that common narrative in a lot of spaces that we have somehow reached a place where racism is no, not not that bad. And I have the heaviest of air quotes, you know, as I say that. And I, I hope it is extremely obvious that that's not the case. But this book is an exam- examination of, of all of those things. And again, those personal touches just sort of really drive that home. It, it, I think this is a really good read along or like companion read to his memoir, Heavy. They both, I think, manage that beautiful line between talking about these really big, complex, and often very painful themes, but connecting them to his own experiences. So yeah, really, really great. That is How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Other Americans by Kiese Lehman. Okay, my next pick is a nonfiction book. It is going to be a discussion of slavery, racialized violence, physical abuse, abuse, and death. I want to say that up front because it is about slavery. It's called South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico, and the Road to the Civil War by Alice L. Baumgartner. 
And this is a little-known history of how thousands of slaves in the South ran away to Mexico. We always get the story of, like, the Underground Railroad and all the slaves headed north, but actually thousands of slaves ran to Mexico. Slavery had been abolished there in 1837. Mexico did not allow the American slave owners to take them back when they ran away. Uh, And slaves also uh, who were traveling in Mexico with their owners were allowed to stay if they wanted to. They could bring charges against their owners even and prove that their owners treated them cruelly and so they needed to stay in Mexico. So Mexico would allow them to remain. And men were hired to go to Mexico and try and kidnap runaway slaves. But Mexico's stance on slavery played a part in Americans' desperate attempts to hold on to slavery and to expand slavery and played a part in slaveholders' attempts to colonize Texas. And it also explains the role that Mexico played, you know, eventually in the Civil War. It's not what I would call a page turner. It is not like narrative nonfiction, but it's wildly interesting. And it's a really important read because... Everyone should know all the aspects and events that played a part in American history. I also found it important as a Mainer, as I get older, I learn all these things. You know, I'm from Maine. And as a kid, they were like, the South had slavery. The North did not. The North was good. The South was bad. That's just how they taught us. So we always thought like, oh, yes, we were like the good part because we didn't have slavery. But obviously, we know now it's not that simple. People had slaves. The North's interests were never really in helping slaves as much as keeping the South from grabbing more territory. You know, so it's an important read for, you know, people need to learn these things. It also is not as long as you would expect. It's one of those books that has a ton of references and citations. I was reading it and I think I got like two thirds of the way through it and it ended and I was like, but wait, and then it was all like references. It was amazing. It's so interesting to see like how much work somebody puts into a book. It's just incredible. And it's an important book. And I think everyone should read it. It is called South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War by Alice L. Baumgartner. And now we're going to hear from the sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, what do you have for us next? I really, really love this book, and I picked it with timing in mind. (laughs) That is Pappyland, a story of family, fine bourbon, and the things that last by Wright Thompson. I'm not even trying to be funny. I legitimately was like, hey, we're recording week of November 3rd. Like, yeah, Pappyland and bourbon sounds like a thing I'll want to imbibe and then also talk about, except I can't afford it. But the book is really an interesting look at this, this family. So I'll obviously tell you about it. For those who don't know, like if you're not a whiskey drinker or a drinker at all, the Van Winkle family is 
essentially royalty, really, in the whiskey world, specifically Kentucky bourbon. It's got cult status at this point. The least expensive bottle that I think you can buy on the site right now is like something that's been aged for 10 years, and I think it's $70, but it goes all the way up to $300 a bottle. And this stuff, that's that's for what's being made right now. Like If you were to go online and look for older vintages, stuff from like 2017 is selling in the thousands. And I mean, like anywhere from 1600, I saw one that was going for five grand, like and people pay it because again, it's got this cult status as being like the finest Kentucky bourbon that there is, etc, etc. And it's got a really cool story to how it came to be like their motto is that we make fine bourbon at a profit if we can at a loss if we must but always find bourbon. And so Wright Thompson, you know, the author of the book set out to write this at first as a sort of straight biography of Julian Van Winkle III, who is the current uh, owner and like proprietor, caretaker, if you will, of the brand. But his grandfather, Julian Van Winkle I, started making bourbon like over 100 years ago in Kentucky. And it's the story itself, which I won't tell you too much about, so you can discover it. But, you know, most people kind of have the idea that he had the business. But unfortunately, when the whiskey business itself kind of took a turn for a while, he lost it or, you know, it almost lost it. So he decided to sell. I think it might have been his son that did the the sale. But they were at this point, just like it, they were destitute, like it was over. Everybody thought, oh, well, you know, that's the end of the Van Winkle family. But in what really is sort of a miraculous turn of events, Julian Van Winkle III was offered by like the huge company that was buying them out, that he offered them the chance to buy these old barrels that they found, not knowing that they were like the barrels used to make the original whiskey. And in just a feat of, again, part miracle, part business savvy, was essentially able to revive the brand. And that's the part that, you know, you'll want to read about. As interesting as that part of it was, because again, I am a whiskey drinker, and it was just really great to learn about this particular family that is, you know, has so much of a lore behind it. The book itself also really feels like a meditation on southernness, like being from the south. The author is a progressive, but he feels like a really strong cultural pull to the place that he's from. He's like, yeah, I'm a progressive, but you know, I get a tear in my eye when I hear like Dixie at like the Kentucky Derby <laughs> sort of thing. And this quote that I read says like, being Southern means carrying a responsibility to shake off the comforting blanket of myth and see ourselves clearly. And I found those two things, like both the compelling history of like how this brand was built sort of from the bottom up, was supposed to fade out from memory and then had this huge, incredible cult resurgence. And then again, that meditation on what it's like to be from a place that has kind of a complicated past that is often you know depicted in stereotypic fashion, but that does still have a lot it needs to examine for itself too. I found that all very interesting. And again, also feels very relevant to the moment that we're in. So yeah, really fun. It's probably going to want to make you go out and grab a glass of bourbon just because the way they describe the product and the love that goes into making each of these different, you know, blends, it's it's pretty great. It's, it's cool if you are into that sort of thing, as I super, super am. So <laughs> that again is Pappyland, a story of family, fine bourbon, and the things that last by Wright Thompson. I am going to end with like a cozy, nice read, which is indeed an actual cozy mystery it is the second in a series. I read the first one last year, and I was very excited to read the second one. It is the Sassy Cat Mystery Series by Jennifer J. Chow. The first one was called Mimi Lee Gets a Clue, and the second that comes out today is called Mimi Lee Reads Between the Lines. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the first one, because I don't want to give anything away in the second one, because that happens sometimes. But Mimi Lee is the owner of a brand new pet grooming business at the beginning of Mimi Lee Gets a Clue here. It's in Los Angeles, and it's called Holly Woof. I love a pun. Mimi's mother is pressuring her to settle down and marry, but you know she's starting out her new business. She's trying to be independent. 
At one point, she has harsh words with a local breeder, and that breeder winds up dead, and now Mimi is the main suspect. So she has to solve the case, and she's going to do it with the help of her partner, who is Marshmallow, her talking cat. Yes, she has a cat that can communicate with her. It's just adorable. I mean, there are puns. I love puns. I'm super excited for the new Abby Collette. I talked about her book, A Deadly Inside Scoop, last year, and she has a new one coming called The Game of Cones, because they take place in an ice cream parlor. I love puns. Like, I love all my jobs, but if I could add, like, a third job to what I do, do I already have three jobs? I might already have three. If I could add another job, I would just love to name Cozy Mysteries and Nail Polish Colors. Like, that would be my dream. But anyway, so it has puns, love puns, and also talking animals. Like, awesome. I love a, a mystery with a cat. Just my wheelhouse. So like I said, it's a cozy mystery, which means there is very little sex. Uh, Mimi does act like a smitten teenager around her lawyer neighbor, um, but not a lot of sex, not a lot of blood, very little violence. And I also love Mimi's family, especially her sister Alice, who was the one who dropped off the talking cat marshmallow to begin with. And I love that she can communicate with the cat. I think I can communicate with my cats too, but mostly they all just seem to be saying food and murder. That's about all I can get out of them. But it's just really fun. and. A quick thing about the second book, it's about Mimi's sister Alice this time. She is an elementary school teacher, and she is suspected of killing a co-worker, so now Mimi and Marshmallow must clear her name. She's got that sort of Jessica Fletcher thing going on where everyone she's related to is involved in a murder somehow. I just finished watching the first five seasons of Murder, she wrote, uh, for work reasons, which I swear is true, um, and... It's just like Jessica Fletcher, everyone she's related to, everyone she goes to visit, like there is a murder that takes place. I think she had like five nieces involved in a murder and a nephew-in-law. And then her nephew Grady was accused of murder, like not once, but twice. And then his fiance. I mean, it's just everyone around her is accused of murder. It's wild. So I watched the first five seasons, but now I don't think I mentioned this, but I watched 37 episodes of Hanging with Mr. Cooper on election day. So I have moved on from Murder, She Wrote. And it's actually, it, it's not that bad. It holds up better than I thought it did. It was something that I watched when I was in high school, hanging with Mr. Cooper. Totally off track now from the excellent sassy cat talking cat mystery books. The first is called Mimi Lee Gets a Clue. The second is Mimi Lee Reads Between the Lines, and they are by Jennifer J. Chow. This is just a fun recording. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching Sister Sister, so I'm like in the oh. same like hang with I like hanging with Mr. Cooper was probably coming like shortly. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted like simple, I don't know, throwback, funny, no high stakes. <laughs> yeah. I know that I watched the first definitely watched the first two seasons, but I completely forgot that the theme song is sung by En Vogue while they're wearing like salmon colored crushed velvet dresses with chokers. Indeed. My absolute favorite part. It's so, so <laughs> 90s. So it is. 90s. <laughs> we all have to just get through and this is how we choose to do so. <laughs> yep. Uh, so good. Okay, I will now tell us about my last book. And that is Love and Olives by Jenna Evans Welch. Also finishing out on a kind of, not cozy because it's not a mystery, but sort of sweet, romantic, easy vibe. So Jenna Evans Welch is the author of Love and Gelato, which I actually have not read, but I've heard really great things, I think from Tirza, if I remember correctly. But uh, today is the day where I talk about books that have a Mamma Mia feel. This actually is a very like Mamma Mia inspired tale. Our main character is Liv Baranakis, and she is the teen protagonist of our story. 
She has a complicated relationship with her father because her father walked out on her family when she was just eight years old, and he just sort of up and moved to Greece. So her memories of him are mostly not fond, as they you know probably wouldn't be if your dad walked out on you at that age. And you know, so she has again complicated relationship. Like she misses him, and most of those memories are not great, except for one, and that or one set of memories, and that is that she cherishes their shared love for Greek mythology and the legend of Atlantis. Like that was the thing that they always bonded over. So, in spite of all these bad feelings, Liv can't help but be intrigued, you know, if a little confused and sort of concerned when she starts to get postcards from her dad sort of out of the blue now that she's a teenager. It appears that he is working on a documentary about his theories on Atlantis, thanks to funding from National Geographic. So he sends her these postcards that are kind of like kitschy and funny, and but they essentially are like, hey, I'm working on this thing. It's on Atlantis, the thing we both love. Like, why don't you fly out to Greece and help me with this project? She understandably has misgivings about this journey. I mean, again, complicated feelings about her dad, like her dad up and left the family like she was just eight years old and like without a word up until now, until these you know postcards started arriving, she just hasn't heard a thing from her dad. But her mom sort of nudges her in that direction to reconnect with her dad. So she decides to go and ends up you know making the trek out to beautiful Santorini. Shockingly, things are a bit awkward. It's the first time she's seen her dad in years. So, of course, she has a lot of questions and lots of complicated, like conflicting feelings are surfacing all at once. So she's dealing with those feelings. It's hashtag complicated. Then there's a boy and it's actually her dad's protege. And that's not making anything any easier because, you know, she's starting to get the feel feels for him. You know, you get the sense pretty quickly on that her dad probably didn't bring her out just for the Atlantis stuff. There is something else that he maybe wants to talk to her about, something that's, you know, bigger picture, much more important. The story is told, obviously, from her perspective, but she recounts a lot of the story through a series of 26 items that her dad left behind before he walked away from the family. These items that she has kept all this time in like a secret shoebox under her bud. So that was just a great format. Again, I'm not all the way done with it, but what I have read has been just very sweet. And the part that I absolutely am 100% enjoying about this is the very immersive sort of armchair travel you get to do. I mean, it's Santorini. So, you know, beautiful sunsets, beautiful water, caves, lots of delicious food. I am such a person who loves to travel. And that is probably, you know, top five of the things that this pandemic has just made me so like, ah, about is that I haven't been able to leave the country once this year. Uh, So all of that part was super great. Plus the, you know, sweet love story and of, you know, connection and the complicated relationships we often have with, you know, parents or parental figures. So yeah, it's, it is such a sweet romantic story that felt good for this reading season of my life. And that is Love and Olives by Jenna Evans-Welch. Okay, those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I have been reading. It's been taking me a while. Not because it's not good. It's great. It's just kind of a chunker. Uh, the Plain Bad Heroines by Emily Danforth. Emily M. Danforth. I think you may have put this one on my radar. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so good. It's so, so, so good. Everyone's reading it. I think Danica mentioned it. She was reading it last week. When oh, we funny. Recorded. <laughs> Everyone Whoops. should read it. Yay. It's so good. I'm doing it on audio. Wow. How long is that? I mean, it's like yeah. 900 pages, right? Yeah. Like how is, the, is this the 900 page or 600 page one? It might be. All I know is it's, I think, close to 19 hours, I think. It's either 18 or 19, My which goodness. isn't the longest audiobook I've ever listened to, but it's long enough that, uh, yeah, it's just taking me a bit. Like, the narration is by Shay Sands, so it's very like, and then this happened, and... Emily, you know, <laughs> so that there's times when I have to speed it up like a tad, <laughs> but it's, oh, it's so <laughs> gothic and... Yeah, it's just good. It's great. I love it. What are you reading? I've been on a reading tear, as I mentioned, but 
like the last eight books that I read, I hated all of them. Like, I just was like, I'm cursed because I know it sounds like I love everything that I read, but I actually read a lot of things that I don't enjoy. And you know that I don't like to talk about books that I that I didn't enjoy. However, like these are books that I can't even tell you what they are because of, you know, because my other job, I'm reading things that are like coming out in 2022 and 2023 and contractually, I can't mention them. But some of them are so bad that I promise that the minute I can, I'm going to tell you what they are. (laughs) So I've just been having like the hardest time. So I reached out to Jessica, who works in ads for Book Riot, because she and I have very similar tastes. And I was like, please tell me something amazing that you've read recently. And she said, who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. So I immediately got it. And I started reading it. And this is the book that I cannot wait to get back to as soon as we finish recording. It's about a young woman. She works for a publisher in New York City. And she's kind of a loner and she's kind of strange. And she gets a job working for an author named Maud Dixon, who is actually like this Ferrante type character. Nobody knows who she really is. She has to sign all these contracts, speaking of not being able to talk about things. And she gets hired to be her assistant. So where I am in the book is she's just gone to where the woman lives. And she's only the second person in the world who knows that this very famous writer with these multi-million dollar selling books is this woman. And she's just started like answering her emails for her and she's doing some chores. It's so good. I can't wait to get back to it. So we're going to wrap it up so I can do that. I'm totally selfish. But that is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our amazing audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com if you want to let us know something. You can find us online. We mostly hang out on Instagram. Vanessa is Buenos Dias SD, and I am Friends and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash allthebooks, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy happy reading. reading.